I'm battling a bit of a cold. Um, so I'm not trying to do an impersonation of James Earl Jones. Uh, if you don't know who that is, he's an actor famous for a very deep voice. But I've got my tea here, and so hopefully I can get through it. Um, but if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at, once again, uh, from continuation from the last time I preached from verses 17 through 20. And uh, I've titled the message here, The Law and the Prophets, Part 2. So let us, let us read the Holy Word of God. Chapter 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, I'm thankful for God's word this morning. And you know... God didn't leave us without his word, thankfully. You know, we're not shooting in the dark here. We're not, uh, we're not just going about aimlessly trying to find our way. He's given us his word to direct us and to guide us. And uh, oftentimes, he's very specific. And hopefully this morning, what I want to do is clear up some things that the enemy has come in and muddied the waters on. That uh, perhaps we lack some understanding and... Um, God has shown me a lot through this group of passages here. The last time I preached uh, from this same group of verses, I specifically focused on the fact that Jesus did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. Uh, that he didn't. That, that the law, the, the whole word, that is the law and the prophets, is basically the Old Testament. He didn't come to abrogate anything. He didn't come to destroy anything. That the word of God is eternal, that it's unchanging, and that everything that contains therein is important. So just a little bit of review to start out with. Jesus preached explicitly that he did not come to destroy or abolish any part of the Old Testament or prophets. That's clear. He makes it clear that he came to fulfill, and there's a difference. He did not come to get rid of the law or to make it null and void. He came and completed it. Finally, there was one, the Lord Jesus, who came and fulfilled the law, who kept the whole law, who was able to obey every single one of God's commands. Purely, perfectly. He did never teach not to worry about the law. 
He himself perfectly kept all of his father's commands. You know, when Adam failed in the garden, when he sinned, even if after the fact he was able to obey every single thing God said from then on, it would still be imperfect. It would still be unpure. And where Adam failed and where we fail, Jesus succeeded. He completed the righteousness that was required by God the Father through the perfect obedience to the law. Adam, even if, he, even if and I'm not saying he did that, it's unlikely, but even if he was able to obey every single thing God said, it's still tainted. It's still tainted by the imperfect disobedience from before. That can't be taken away by human effort. And thus, Adam's righteousness, his righteousness, is left unpure. Adam, like us, cannot remove even one blemish of disobedience, which renders everything else tainted. And so it is with you if you remain in the family of Adam. Now, Jesus obeyed perfectly uh, a work that he did that no one else ever did or could do. And so if you're in the family of Christ by faith, then the amazing thing is, is that righteousness is provided to you. That not by your own effort can you remove any blemish, one disobedience. For Moses says that he who lives by the law is obligated to keep the whole thing. So if you're in the family of Christ by faith, then the perfect righteousness of God is provided for you. And Jesus wants to give you his own righteousness. But the way man has muddied everything up or mucked it up is his attempt to create for himself his own righteousness apart from the works of God. Jesus' unblemished record. Think of this. He has a record. He was batting a thousand. He has a record that is unblemished, that never failed in keeping all all the laws of God. And that, my friend, is what's required to enter in the presence of God. And that, my friend, is what is able to be imparted to you by faith alone. That kind of righteousness. So Jesus didn't come to abrogate or abolish anything about the law. He even talks about later in the next verse, not one jot or one tittle. This jot and tittle is uh, small punctuations in the Hebrew language. It's as if to say not one uh, crossing of a T or dotting of an I will pass. So he didn't come to abrogate the law. In fact, he lifted it up. He lifted up the standard. He lifted up the bar. I want to say about this guy. In the 1600s, there was a man named Sabati Zevi. He was a Turkish Jew born in the Ottoman Empire. 
and he claimed in 1648 that he was the Messiah. Now, this guy garnered quite a large following, probably more than Lord Jesus when he was here. Uh, many hundreds of thousands followed this guy. He literally taught the opposite of the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He did teach the abrogation of the law. He taught salvation through sin, not salvation from sin. He said that he was the true Messiah and that in order to ascend to the kingdom of God, one must first descend into sin. And so not only was uh, the obedience to God diminished, but sin was encouraged by this guy. He taught that to encourage all kinds of immorality, sexual perverseness, um, vices. This man was literally an anti-Christ, teaching the opposite of Christ. And as he taught that the law was void and abolished, this, this should help you, give you some perspective on how important it is what Jesus is saying, that I did not come to abolish to destroy the law and the prophets. He didn't come to destroy. You see, Jesus is the incarnate word of God. If he came to destroy the, the law and the prophets, that's the word of God, he would be undermining the foundation of his mission. He'd be undermining his persona. He, he, as the incarnate word of God, the, the perfect substitute, he would be undermining all the testimony that spoke about him. And so obviously any teaching that teaches against the law of God, it teaches that the, the law is done away with, that we ought to unhitch from the Old Testament, that that's not for today, that is anti-Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here, that he did not come to teach anything like that. Anything like that is anti-Christ. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, 5, speaking of this guy, uh, Sabadee Zevi, for many shall come in my name and saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And I did some research, and I counted 40 people throughout history since the time of Christ have claimed to be the Messiah. And so to hold to any belief or doctrine that opposes the law and the prophets, says that they're destroyed, is to hold to an antichrist doctrine. So you know the verses here, but let's look at um, let's look at Second Timothy three sixteen. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So all the scripture, Old Testament, Genesis to Revelation, is given by inspiration of God. That's what makes it important. That's what gives it its preeminence, is it's given by God. And it's profitable for what? To hang on the wall as an ornament, some kind of piece of art. Oh, I got Jeremiah 29, 11 up there. Is that, is that what it's profitable for? Is it profitable to, you know, just think of those things as historical, you know, sort of, 
anecdotal things that are just nice to talk about. No, it's profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So if you abolish that or abrogate it, destroy it, however you want to say it, then then we would be shooting blind. We'd be in the dark. How about John 5.39? I mentioned this last time. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Bible is not about you. It's not about anything about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole thing is about Jesus Christ. We search the scriptures, and that's what we find. Jesus Christ. We find all the things that pointed to him. The types and shadows, the prophecies, the specific things about what he would do and where he'd be born, and all those things that spoke to his coming. The types and shadows of the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, the, 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 the unblemished lamb that was to be brought on the day of atonement. These are things that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Hebrews 10, 7. I'm going to revisit that verse later, but Hebrews 10, 7 says, Then said I, speaking of Christ, Christ saying this, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. It's written of him. And so Jesus did not destroy one jot or one tittle from the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. There's a difference. In the first way that Jesus fulfills the law, and so now I want to get into um, what we're going to talk about more today is how he fulfilled it. And so we're going to focus more on verses 19 through 20, but how he fulfilled the law and what that really means for us. Well, the first way that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is by lifting them up. Jesus raised high the bar. He lifted high the standard. He was applying what the religious teachers of his time applied only externally and an outward showing of the law. He was cutting it to the heart. He was applying it to the heart. Let's look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's what Jesus is lifting up the law and the prophets to do. He's exposing hypocrisy. He's exposing evil. He's exposing self-righteousness. And he's exposing expressly defining the standard of righteousness and holiness. That it's not just keeping the laws that you can perceive that you do. It's all of it. It's perfect. The standard is high. That's what he's doing here when he's 
the first way he's fulfilling it is by lifting it up. So the word fulfill in the Greek, the original Greek is pleru, and it actually means to full, to fill up, to render full or complete. So Jesus would definitely not be tolerant of sin. He was lifting up the law. He would definitely not tolerate it. Instead, he expressed the authority of it. He lifted up the law of God because the word of God's authority. It is the authority on which the church stands. It's all we've got as far as authority goes. It is our authority for governance, for how we live our lives, for how we interact with each other. Jesus is, he expressed his authority as the incarnate word of God and the authority of the word of God. And we, so we saw there in 2 Timothy 3.16 and John 5.39 about the importance of that. The importance of it, it, it's preeminent because it's from God and because it's all about Jesus. Listen, it, it, the whole Old Testament pointed to him. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the word given by Moses. In Joshua, he's salvation's choice. In Judges, he's the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet there. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the one who's sovereign. In Ezra, he is the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls. In Esther, he's the one who raised up courage. In Job, he is the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he's our morning song. In Proverbs, he's the cry of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the time and the seasons. In the Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Lamentations, the cry for Israel. Ezekiel, the call from sin. In Daniel, he's the stranger that was in the fire. In Hosea, he's forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, he's the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he's the promise of peace. In Nahum, he's our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he's the one, that he's the, the plea for revival there. In Haggai, he's the restoration of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, he's our fountain. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. So God forbid it be diminished in any way. So Jesus exalts the law and goes far beyond the rabbinical traditions. You see that later in the Sermon on the Mount. And many of you know about traditions of man. And he dealt with that. He goes far beyond their rabbinical traditions. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see where he says, You have heard it said of old time, but I say unto you this. He's not saying that he's changing it. He's saying, you've heard it of old time. You've heard it by your traditions, this, but that's not right. The Word of God is not a book that gives suggestions or advice on how to live a better life. The Word of God, the Bible, is absolute and makes absolute commands. 
This is the standard. Let's look back at Hebrews 10, 7. And I, I do want you to turn there, if you don't mind, to look at that verse. Then said I, Jesus, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Jesus came to do. He came to render a completed work. And the law is the expression of God's righteousness and holiness. He came to do the will of God. So what's the will of God? The law. The law, the prophets, his word, that's his will, that's his expressed will, that's his revelation to us. And Jesus came to do the volume of the book, it's written of me, to do thy will, O God. He came to render a completed work, and that is what he did. And thanks be to God for that, that he provided for his children in such a way to complete that work. Because without it, we're hopeless, hopelessly lost. Jesus came to do the law and to complete it in his obedience to that perfect and pure requirement of the law. And so that brings us to the second way. The other way he's completed, he fulfills the law. Listen to this, friends. This is important. The other way he fulfills the law, he completed its purpose. He completed its purpose. Now look at these two, let's look at these two verses. And I want you to turn there. The first one is Deuteronomy 6, 24 through 25. Deuteronomy 6.24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day, and it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. Notice that it says here, the law is our righteousness if we observe to keep it all. That's worth reading again. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. It shall be our righteousness if we observe to keep it all. But they didn't observe to keep it all, did they? And we didn't, we haven't kept all the law of God, have we? So let's turn to Romans 10.4 and let's notice a change here.
They didn't keep the law. We broke the law. We've sinned. So what did God have to do? Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe, to everyone that believeth. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You see the difference there. The law was given. And Moses said there in Deuteronomy 6, it will be our righteousness if we Keep, if we do all the law, if we keep it, and if we're careful to keep all the statutes, everything God said, but they failed, and we failed. But now, this is the other way Jesus has fulfilled, because he fulfilled the purpose of the law. He completed the purpose of it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. The Greek word there, end, is telos, which means utterly terminated. He's the end of the law for righteousness. You cannot be justified by the law. No way. The only way for you to be justified in the sight of God is to believe in the one who did fulfill it. The only justifier of man, the Lord Jesus. That's why the Muslim has no sacrifice for sin. That's why the pious Jew has no sacrifice for sin. The Hindu, the Buddhist, the Taoist, any one of them, no matter how pious and holy they think that they are, they have no, there remains no sacrifice for sin. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And notice that it's to everyone that believeth. That's important there. Because Jesus, remember I said earlier, wants to give you his righteousness. He desires that. But it only comes by faith. Righteousness is still defined on God's terms. Make no mistake about that. Righteousness is still defined by God's terms We don't get to pick and choose what laws we can do and say, therefore, we're good. It's defined by God's terms. And the holy standard is still the law. And Jesus is the embodiment of that. The incarnate word, the only one who kept it. Never had one millisecond of a bad attitude. He was constantly doing his Father's will. He was never selfish His heart was in the right place, too. You know, he wept for Jerusalem. And those of you who are not in Christ, he weeps for you. Because you will undoubtedly seek to be justified in some way. You may say, well, I don't believe that there is an eternal punishment. Or you may say that "I I don't believe the Bible or whatever. But if someone's to ask you what's your standard of goodness or your standard of righteousness, you're going to justify yourself in some way. And what it usually always is, is you compare yourself to other people. You find somebody else that's worse than you, and you say, I'm a good person because of this. And Jesus weeps for you. He's the end of the law for righteousness. He's the only way you can obtain righteousness. And that righteousness, my friend, you need it. You need it more than you need food and water. 
than air. Because without it, the wrath of God will surely pour on you. The only way for you to be justified in the sight of God is to believe in the one who fulfilled the law. Because he's the embodiment of it. And he died as a propitiation, a substitute, in order to give you that very righteousness that you need, that God requires. Now let's look at Ephesians 2, 13 through 15. And again, we're talking about how Jesus fulfilled the law. Ephesians 2, 13. Okay, listen to this, my brothers and sisters. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Well, this speaks to a couple things. But I need you to understand first is that we can see here that the purpose of the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws of Israel were to separate Jew and Gentile. Do you see that word separation there that uh, at, at, in times past, the Gentiles were afar off, in verse 13. We, it says, ye who were sometimes were afar off, are now made near by the blood of Jesus. We were far off because we were, uh, at, before Jesus came on the scene, before the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, uh, we were apart from the word of God. The word of God was revealed to Abraham's physical descendants, and they had the word, the oracles of God. Paul talks about in Romans that they, what advantages the Jew, they had the oracles of God. They, they had a leg up on us. They had a head start. So those, those ceremonial ordinances and those uh, judicial things, you know, they, they, those things dictated how they dressed, dictated the foods they ate. Uh, dictated uh, certain feasts and memorials and celebrations that they had. Those were to keep them separate from the Gentiles, to keep us apart from them so that their, their nation wouldn't be tainted with, with the sin of the world. But listen, it says, But now in Christ you were made, some, who were sometimes far off, you're made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both, that's Jew and Gentile, has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. In other words, those things that separated Jew and Gentile, they're broken down. Broken down. We're no longer separated from the commonwealth of Israel. We're no longer, those things are not in our way. Broken down. The middle wall of partition between us having abolished in what? In his flesh. In his suffering, the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. And that ordinances there, I believe, is talking about those ceremonial things. 
It's not talking about the moral law. We know that because of the epistles and the patterns of the New Testament, which I'll get into a little bit later on. But it's, it's talking about those ordinances, you know, those ceremonial things. And notice there that it's to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Romans 5.1 says that, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one way to have peace with God. And that's through Jesus Christ. Without Je- that, that dictates a necessity that without Jesus Christ, there is a war with God. And as Charles Spurgeon said, Sinner, the Ten Commandments stand against you like ten great pieces of artillery, ten cannons ready to unleash upon you. It makes you the children of wrath. The law condemns. And Jesus Christ is that shield. His, you see, His keeping of the law, His fulfilling it, and your faith in Him, it goes to God with a pardon in hand and offers to God that pardon on your behalf, making peace. How incredible is this work of Christ. I think sometimes we overlook that, how amazing that, that is, that we have peace with God, that through Jesus' suffering, He brought peace. He broke down the wall of partitions that separated us from the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his frustration, remembered to the Jews, he said, I go to the Gentiles. He said, I'm done with you. I go to the Gentiles. The wall of separation was broken down by Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus was crucified on the cross, moments after the veil was ripped in twain and tore down. The Gentiles weren't even allowed to go into the the temple. I think there was a part of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles, which is the outward part they could go into, uh, someone who professed faith, but they couldn't go inside. But now, that's done away with. Jesus Christ doesn't destroy the law. He fulfills it. He has fulfilled it. And this, this is incredible. And the Gentile can now access God through Jesus Christ. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be in this place worshiping the great God of the universe. We wouldn't be here partaking of the peace that's given to us in Christ if it wasn't for that. And we know from Galatians, it says there that there is therefore now no more Jew nor Greek but one in Christ. So those things are fulfilled. They are completed. The purpose of those ceremonial laws and the judicial laws was to separate Jew and Gentile. And as a type and forerunner of the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. A shadow. You know, the, 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 the Passover lamb, the, the blood on the doorpost, that was a picture of him. If that blood of the lamb of God is on your heart, then the 
the angel of death will pass over you because you have peace with God. So those things are fulfilled. Jesus renders those things not destroyed because they are still useful in the purposes. Remember in 2 Timothy 3.16, they're still useful in the purposes that God has set them out to do. So they're not destroyed, but they're fulfilled, completed. No more separation of Jew and Gentile. And now the one who those things pointed to and gave testimony to has come to reign in our hearts. You know, if I left and went somewhere for a long time, and I was gone for months, and I wrote a letter to one of you, I wrote a letter to Chris, and I said, Chris, I'm going to be coming back, and I'm going to come visit you at your house. We're going to do these things, and this is what I want to talk about, and show you some things that we did. And he had that letter, and then months later, I came to his house to visit him. And instead of talking to me, he just kept reading the letter. He just kept on, well, this is what we're going to do here. And it's like, dude, I'm here. Let's do it. Those things are completed. No more separation. The one that it all spoke about is is here now. Now let's look at verse 19 of Matthew 5. I got to say, I'm enjoying this. I'm I'm enjoying exalting the Lord Jesus through his word this morning. Verse 19 Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore. So therefore causes us to look back and go in reverse a little bit. As it said, what's that therefore, right? So therefore, well, Therefore what? Because the law is important, because it is preeminent, because it's not abolished, as he said there in 17 and 18, that it in no wise will pass till all be fulfilled. And then he says, whosoever therefore, because it's so important and so preeminent and still applies, whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and teach and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Because of the importance and exalted position of the law, so therefore anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men to do also shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to notice two things here. And the first I want to point out is this speaks to the doctrines of justification and sanctification. We're not justified in keeping or teaching the law. No way, because we failed. Just as Adam failed. But doing and teaching does have something to do with your sanctification. It does have something to do with your sanctification, for sure. Notice he doesn't say you'll be out of the kingdom. Because it doesn't have anything to do with your justification necessarily. I say necessarily because 
one ought to walk in the ways of the Lord if you're truly saved. Paul questioned the Corinthian church. Remember that? But praise God that his mercy abounds and even when we fail, he doesn't kick us out of the kingdom. But our sanctification is dependent on this. Notice that what the Lord says here. He clearly says that what you do with the law directly impacts your position in heaven. Whether you'll be the least or the great. Whether you get in with your clothes singed with fire and barely escaping the wrath and the fire of hell. Or if you get in loaded down with reward. What you do with the law directly affects that. So remember what he says in verse 19 when he says, therefore, it's because he's pointing back to verses 17. It's important. What he's saying is important. And, and the word there, destroy, in verse 17, okay, is katalu, which means to loose. To loose one or to free one from the law. So Jesus is saying in verse 19 that I did not come to loose anyone from the law or loosen the requirement of the law. So if you do that and you teach men to do that, you're doing something I wouldn't do. You're doing something that's anti-biblical, anti-Christ. You know, there are many churches who take a lax approach on sin. They sort of just walk around it. Jesus didn't do that. So he's saying, that's not my teaching. You do that and you teach an anti-biblical doctrine. And that's a fearful thing. God forbid. But there is a temptation that we deal with to do that. We hear it all around us. The world has adopted the wisdom of the, or, or sorry, the church has adopted the wisdom of the world, so to speak. And so there's that temptation to do that. Well, we're under grace, so it's okay. You've, you've, you continue on in sin, but, you know, God still loves, loves you, and, you know, we're, un, we're in the dispensation of grace now, and that's a bad mentality to have. And any teacher who would teach anything like that, I would have to question what their standing is, not only in the kingdom of heaven, but where their faith is. So this also indicates that there are degrees or some laws that are more important than others, some least, some greater. So what about this? Um, Now, the Jews believed this. They divided the laws into two categories, uh, positive and negative. So they had 248 positive commands. They had 365 negative commands, which totaled 613 commands. And they would have big debates on which ones were more important than others. That way they could focus on the bigger ones and not worry so much about the little ones, the lesser ones. You know, they'd spend more of their efforts keeping the bigger ones. And that way they could have some kind of claim to self-righteousness, right? 
well, we can't keep it all, but let's find out which ones. Remember the guy who asked Jesus that? That's where that comes from. Because he, he had, that's their, that was their teaching. They had these debates on which ones were greater, which ones were lesser. Which ones should I more focus on? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And these two things hang all the law and the prophets. So he didn't de- degrade it in any way. Even in that statement, he exalts it. But no doubt there are some that's greater in the sight of God. Let's look at Matthew 23, 23. Think of their debates, you know, that they have and Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have to have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So there are things that are more important. You know, we would say that tithing is important, right? They, they, were, they were called and uh, commanded to tithe. But it's not more important than justice and faith. I mean, that would be hypocritical for someone to, oh, I'm going to make sure that I, I tithe my 10% and then they're having an adulterous affair. So there are things that are more weightier, but that doesn't mean you leave the others undone, you see. You see, the temptation is for us to keep the ones that we can. Control the things that we can control and then say, well, I've, I've done this. I'm righteous. Therefore, the law and the commands are important in the sight of God. But what the Pharisees did, <clears throat> and we are tempted to do, is to pick and to choose the things that make us look good to others the things that we are able to keep that are easy, that we think we can do, and then we have this idea of righteousness from ourselves. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. To keep in mind that although none Not even the least command is loosed or destroyed. There are those things that are fulfilled. And so we declare the whole counsel of God. We declare it all. We don't run away from declaring all 613 laws. We don't don't stop declaring all the types and shadows, the Passover, the feast. We don't stop preaching the Psalms and Genesis and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. We preach the prophets. We preach the law. But we also recognize the completed work of Christ. And this is why, my friends, Paul declared to the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty twenty seven. this is what he said, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And this is the failure of so many false doctrines 
in churches that teach these false doctrines out there. Is they don't declare the full counsel of God. They rest on parts. They pick and choose. They will cherry pick verses and they will say, well, this is why we do this. And they negate other aspects of the counsel of God. We must declare the full counsel of God. Remember what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. Meditate on that verse, what it really means to you. And don't be just hearers of the word only, but doers. This is why we must declare the whole counsel of God. And I believe this thing about teaching others, the aspect of teaching others also, you know, um, diminishing the law and teaching others to abrogate the law, that, that deals with the mindset or the condition of the heart. Like it's no big deal. Like sin is just oopsie-daisy. Not the fact that it's cosmic treason against a holy God, a righteousness that we can't fathom, that we have in our hearts just said, uh, we've got grace. But the one who loves God does sweat the small stuff, does, like David, a man after God's own heart, he cared about the little things, but he didn't strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. He didn't leave off the weightier matters of the law. And so that's why we declare the full counsel of God, but we recognize the completed work of Christ. He fulfilled the law. He is our righteousness, not, not our works of the law. We declare it and we don't abrogate it, but we recognize that Christ, He kept it all, and He is our righteousness. We're to take God's law seriously. Let's look at the positive side of verse 19. Whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is the positive. If you teach what you don't believe, if you teach something you don't do, then you're, as, you're a hypocrite. When I was a little child, I, I heard adults say a lot, do as I say, not as I do. That's the definition of hypocritical teaching. Do as I say, not as I do. Jesus said it and did it. That do as I say, not as I do is the foolishness of man. Your reward is directly connected to what you do with God's law. You're either going to be the least blessed or loaded down with reward. And I think, brothers and sisters, that that, that works out in this life too. When we obey God, God blesses us for that. Sometimes in possessions, in goods, but oftentimes in a spiritual peace in that confidence that we know we belong to God. That assurance that we're safe and secure in the arms of the Lord Jesus. Now let's look at verse 20. 
before I close. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of God. Wow! That's a shock to them who heard that. Because we're talking about the scribes and Pharisees. These men were so highly revered. So their attitude was probably, well, there's no hope for me. There, there's no hope for me whatsoever. If they can't get in, then how in the world am I supposed to get in? What is Jesus doing again there? He's exalting the law of God. He's getting past their rabbinical traditions. He's saying, yeah, you think those men are good? You've got to be better than that because their heart is hardened. There is obviously a correlation here with John 3.3. 3. Except a man be born again, he can no wise see the kingdom of God. You need a totally new nature. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. Based on your own goodness, you cannot enter heaven. George Whitfield said this, the great evangelist. Get to heaven by works? I would just assume climb to the moon on a rope made of sand. The righteousness requirement of God is utter perfection. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds these men who you most revere as holy, you cannot ever enter the kingdom of God. You won't even be a part of it. You're, you're, you're the blind leading the blind. You're just like them. So who were the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, the scribes were those who administered and taught the word, who cataloged or recorded the history of Israel. These were the forerunners of what became rabbis, the teachers. The Pharisees were a sect of religious conservatives, as opposed to the Sadducees, who were, in that day, the religious liberals. When Jesus says this, it would be like saying to a room full of Roman Catholics, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pope, the cardinals and bishops, you will no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you know when the Pope comes to town, it's pomp and frill and... I mean, they lay out the red carpet and parades. I mean, this is what they say is the vicar of Christ. What a blasphemy. He's just a man. And these scribes and Pharisees, who were they? Men. They were just men. So Jesus is saying that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of humanity of man's wisdom and man's righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of God. He will reject you. Let's look at Luke 18, 18.
And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard this, these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute it unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And stop there. There is a, a war going on right there. And it is the war of perceived righteousness versus faith. The rich young ruler has perceived himself to be righteous. All these things I've done. Jesus calls him to faith. He says, one thing you lack. What is he lacking? Faith. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have. Distribute it to the poor, and you come back and follow me. What does he say in verse 23? And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. He didn't have faith. He had a perception of righteousness, but he did not have the faith in the one who really was righteous. He wouldn't follow the one who really was righteous. He perceived that he was righteous enough. He goes on to say, read verse 23 again, And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that, he was very sorrowful. And he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they, they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The works of God are what's required to save you. Because your works are insufficient. Your perceived righteousness. God laughs at. Your perceived righteousness is. What does the Bible say? A filthy minstrel rag. It's nothing. You try to offer good deeds. To cover up the sins that you've committed. Against a holy God. You are like Hitler bringing a bouquet of roses. You know, Hitler is what we would call the epitome of evil. Massacred the Jews, the Holocaust. If he was to bring you a bouquet of roses and said, forgive me for this. It's like filthy rags. And so. But the positive to that, it's impossible with you. That's the negative. 
But the positive is that it's not impossible with God. And His grace is sufficient. And not only that, friends, but He has a great desire to save. So this faith that God calls us to, to the one who did fulfill and complete the whole law of God, it is so much greater and it trumps so hard our own perceived righteousness. There are things that you've probably heard before. But it's no less impactful. It's no less important how many times we hear it. So you need to know that there are things fulfilled. And Christ alone is our righteousness. But the word of God still commands us as believers to uphold and live according to the moral law. Ceremonial, we saw in Ephesians 2, 13-15, the wall of partition is broken down. We know from Acts 10, don't call unclean what God has made clean. These things that the epistles speak of. But the moral law of God, which is the undergirding of all of those ceremonial and judicial things, all of the sacrificial things was undergirded by the moral law. It hasn't changed. That's the, we are called to live by that. We are called to uphold 1 Corinthians 6. Don't think for a minute you can just live how you want to live and be right with God. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall, in, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, that's homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God, period. It says there, don't be deceived. Because the word of God knows that there will come people who try to deceive you on that very thing. On that very topic. And other scripture deals with people trying to deceive you in other things. Oh man, you got to be circumcised. No, that's done away with, brother. That's the wall of partition broken down. Oh, you got to eat these food. You got to abstain from meats. No, Christ fulfilled those things. The moral law, God completed in Jesus Christ the requirement of the law. But us being born again dictates a a changed nature. Notice after he says all these things in verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And when we fail, yes, we have forgiveness. 
but an attitude of diminishing the law of God is quite possibly an attitude of one who's not born again. So will you continue in some perceived form of fake righteousness? Or will you take the faith, put your faith in the one who has the real righteousness that God requires, the perfect righteousness? These are things that we wrestle with, I know. But I hope, and my prayer was this morning, that I would be able to present this very clear and very precise so that we would know the mind of Christ, the character of God, His righteousness, and what He requires of us. So God bless you, and I appreciate you listening.